The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by Fraser Nelson, James Forsyth and Isabel Hardman. The situation in Ukraine continues to evolve. Ukraine have asked for a ceasefire in talks with Russia. Fraser, what's the latest? It's incredible to think what's happened just over this weekend. Things I thought I would never live to see have happened in the space of of a few hours. We've seen Germany, for example, saying effectively it's going to behave like a normal military country again. It's going to increase its defence spending to 2% of GDP. You've got Sweden, which has been neutral in pretty much every conflict since 1940, um, sending 5,000 anti-tank missiles to Ukraine. Even Britain only sends 2,000 of these things. So huge changes in the German political debate and the Swedish political debate. You've got even Switzerland thinking of joining sanctions. You've got not just... Swift sanctions agreed, but central bank sanctions taken as well, effectively creating the kind of um, economic encirclement of a nuclear-armed Russia. It's just incredible how fast things are moving. Only a couple of weeks ago, it looked as if the West was split, that Germany would never agree to swift sanctions, that um, the Scandinavians were too fearful of becoming Russian targets to get too close to, to NATO. And now you're seeing the the reformation, I guess, of the West, but not only the West. You're now getting um, Japan, South Korea, who are working out that it's within their interests as well to to dissuade um, Putin, because if he gets away with annexing Crimea, then a revanchist China might move on Taiwan and start to have its own aspirations on its own near abroad. So you're seeing this um, really quite extraordinary political realignment. And this is going on at the same time as, again, just heartbreaking and staggering scenes in, in, in Kiev and Ukraine. It's funny that my, my, um, my, my wife's family are refugees from the Soviets. They fled when Soviet um, tanks rolled into Prague. And in my household, you know, we've got lots of pictures of the Prague Spring as if it was something that belonged to history. And I was always showing it to my kids thinking, you know, it's funny kids. This is unimaginable now. But you did get a time where, where tanks would leave Moscow and roll into a European capital. Well, those times are back upon us now. And a lot of countries are thinking that this has just disproven two or three decades worth of um, wishful thinking about defence. And they're moving now to the old Reaganite principle of um, peace through strength. This has been so hastily done that there are legitimate questions to be asked over whether it's gone too far. How we really worked out what, how Putin might react to such, um, to basically trashing his currency. So there's so much to, to think about. So many questions facing us now, huge questions that weren't even facing us on Friday. James, also hearing the word nuclear in two ways. Can you tell us more? So Vladimir Putin has uh, moved Russia's nuclear weapons onto a higher state of readiness. I think this is a sign that the conflict is not going as uh, the Kremlin intended. I think that they were not expecting, and to be fair, nor nor were many uh, West military analysts, that it take this long for them to establish air superiority, for Kiev to still be holding out on, on Monday morning as it is. And it also, look, one has to 
treat with caution any information coming out from the battlefield. But it does appear that Russia is taking a kind of heavier level of casualties than people might have expected before the war. And I think Putin is, I think, also rattled by the extent to which the West position has changed. You know, you've had Germany, which, you know, remember, you know, the British didn't fly over German airspace when they were delivering lethal aid to Ukraine previously because the British didn't make that request because they were worried that, A, the request might be refused or that it would take too long to be agreed to. You've now got Germany declaring that it itself will send weaponry to Germany, not just allow the export of things that are German manufactured or the use of German airspace, but it itself will do that. As Fraser said, you've got Olaf Scholz saying that Germany will spend 2% plus on defence by 2024. You know, that, that is a major change of Germany's posture. And I think you've got Europe waking up to a realisation that this dependence on Russian gas is dangerous. You've got even the German Greens, you know, a party defined almost by their opposition to nuclear power, being willing to uh, look at the prospect of whether you could restart some of Germany's nuclear plants to provide a temporary source of alternative energy to Russian gas. And By the way, it was worth saying that the swift strictures do not include gas. No. Germany can still buy gas because they need it. And this is the funny thing. Uh, in this little footnote, we're reminded that the fact that Germany still gets half of its energy from Russia, which of course can turn off the taps at any time, now that Germany is sending anti-tank missiles to, to kill Russian uh, soldiers with in Ukraine. So the, you know, the things which, might, the, which this week might bring is just extraordinary. This week could end in any one of several very dramatic ways. Yeah, and and I think you can't have any certainty as to how it's going to turn out, Kate. Isabel, when it comes to the UK response so far, we're seeing an effort by loads around Boris Johnson to talk up his involvement and say the UK is leading. But yet there are a few, a few cracks forming. For example, um, the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss um, suggested that people could go to Ukraine to fight and the Defence Secretary appears to have a different view. Yes, so uh, Liz Truss was on the Sunday uh, broadcast round yesterday and she said that she would support British people uh, travelling to Ukraine uh, to fight against the Russians. And as you say, Katie, this morning, Defence Secretary Ben Wallace was doing a broadcast round and uh, he was a little bit more cagey. He uh, kept putting a real emphasis, particularly on the Today programme, on um, on the need for these people who are going out to, to have some kind of training rather than just go out and pick up an AK-47. And he also kept saying, uh, but, you know, if, if you want to if you want to sign up and fight, then you should join the British Army uh, because we're helping around the borders of this situation as well. So, so, so there's been that. I think there's also been um, quite a lot of awkwardness over the treatment of refugees coming out of Ukraine. And there have been some, um, uh, some I think we could say, some slip-ups from ministers on this as well. So Kevin Foster, who's an immigration minister, managed to suggest that people fleeing the conflict might be able to apply for the, uh, the visa that allows people to come here and pick fruit for a season, which um, has led to some quite, quite a lot of criticism. There's a very good cartoon um, with Pretty Patel shouting at someone in a burning building saying... Uh, do you want to come here and pick fruit? That tweet has been deleted. It's now been clarified that, that anyone settled in the UK will be able to bring their Ukrainian immediate family members to join them here. That was an announcement from number 10 last night. But I think- It's still pretty mean though, isn't it, Isabel? I mean, the, the, if, 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 only you, if you're Ukrainian here, then you can bring in people. It's, you know, I, I'm just amazed at how, uh, how niggardly this response is. You've got... Um, 
you know, we're not that many Ukrainians coming over here, and yet still we are really dragging our heels and doing what what Global Britain ought to do, which is basically say, you know, they're quite clearly fleeing conflict. We can see columns of these people leaving the borders right now. And what's Britain saying? Come here and pick berries, or come here if you've already got family here. Hardly any Ukrainians are living in Britain now. It's a really small migration um, wave we've got. And yet you couldn't get a more open and cut case for Britain doing what Sweden did to my um, my wife's relatives, which is to let then they let anybody fleeing the Soviets come in, is a massively successful wave of migration, and I think it could be successful here too. My, my wife, by the way, is just I've just heard she's passed her life in the UK test, so she's going to be British soon. Oh, so, congratulations to Fraser's wife! Yeah. And I, I think that there is this, yeah, as, as you say, there's also a contrast between the British response, which is just so about control and about a sort of paranoia of of letting down any kind of defence against immigration and the response of countries closer to Ukraine. And obviously it is much easier for refugees to get to those countries closer to Ukraine and to be there hopefully for a very short amount of time before returning to their homes. You look at Poland and Moldova who have been welcoming refugees with open arms, who've been making very clear that they will do whatever they can to help, very quickly setting up supplies of clothes and food and so on for people arriving and then you look at Britain talking as as Fraser characterised it about people coming here to pick berries. I mean it's you know it's not even berry picking season at the moment there's not really very much growing so the, the whole thing comes across as illustrative I think of the the chaos in government over immigration and over anything that it that involves refugees uh, which given the crisis in Afghanistan in the summer you think we might have uh, been able to develop a slightly more agile response to. James, do you think Boris Johnson is going to have to offer a wider programme? There have been a few hints of that. Yeah, I I think it's inevitable that the the British offer will have to become more generous. The the UK has, and it has got quite a few things right in this conflict. It was calling on Germany not to certify Nord Stream 2 for for several months. It was early in terms of sending lethal aid in terms of defensive weaponry to Ukraine. And I I think you've seen what a difference that has made on the ground. And it was, you know, early in calling for Russia to be cut out of SWIFT. But I think on this humanitarian aspect, I mean, I mean, you know, the, the UK response is, as, as Fraser and Isabel have said, you know, is not commensurate to the moment. I, I also think it is remarkable the levels of solidarity and organisation that the Poles are showing in dealing with the huge numbers of people crossing the border into Poland from Ukraine, the huge numbers of women and children. But I think, I think there's something else going on here, which is the longer that Ukraine holds out, the more profound the geopolitical shifts that this conflict is is creating are becoming. Because I think you are what you are seeing is a realization of the stakes involved, and that you know that this is this is you could argue a falling power trying to rip up the world order, and there is also obviously a rising power in China that wishes to to do the same. And I think that this is a that the the world will look a very different place after this conflict, whatever the outcome of it, than it did before. Thank you, James. Thank you, Isabel. And thank you, Fraser.